most longevity research that we know is being funded by by billionaires. And so, so longevity therapeutics haven't really been on, the, let's say, the purview of a pharma company. The reason for that is because aging is not considered a, a disease. So if you want to develop a like a pharmaceutical or a medicine and you want to take it through the classical pharmaceutical development pipeline, what you're developing has to be considered a, a disease by kind of by the, the Food and Drug Administration in the, in the U.S., or by the EMA, the European Medicine Agency. But so in aging, so aging has been in this in this weird field where if you essentially develop a medicine that would prevent people from getting a disease, that's not considered a, a treatable disease. <laughs> this is season two of Voices of the Data Economy, a podcast supported by Ocean Protocol Foundation. I'm your host, Diksha Datta, bringing to you the voices shaping the data economy. Listen to founders in crypto and blockchain, experts in tech policy, and pioneers in decentralization, all sharing their relationship with data. So hello, today we have Paul with us. He is the co-author of Vita Dao White Paper. And Vita Dao is a community-owned collective funding early stage longevity research. He's also the founder of Molecule Protocol. And Paul is based in Berlin. So hello, Paul. Hi, Diksha. Great to be here with you. Thanks so much for the invite. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to host you. So, Paul, I mean, as soon as I hear about Vida Dao, uh, I, I think I'm not the only person, but, but the first question that comes to my mind is like, why longevity research? And the second part to it is, uh, how did you get interested in it? So to start with, you know, we would love a little bit of uh, background on this. <laughs> so I think longevity research and longevity therapeutics are really uh, if we consider medicine as a whole, are really like the final frontier of medicine? Uh, if we can stop um, the genetic process in our body of aging, uh, we can also really stop the onset of many uh, of many of the diseases that that are known to man, um, ranging from cancer to diseases like um, age, like age related diseases like Alzheimer's. And if we if we can really if we could stop the onset of those diseases. Uh, we could save an enormous amount of uh, like costs across society. Um, so if you look at medicine through the lens of aging, it really, I think, fundamentally changes the way that, yeah, that you actually think about medicine. <laughs> and so longevity, developing longevity therapeutics isn't really so much about like, can we age forever or, or this kind of this, this, um, this, I think, enamored notion of, of billionaires in a sense of like, let's just, yeah, not, not die but rather how can we um how can we spend uh a better let's say end of life um so the the highest costs typically associated with like medical costs if you look at like this from an economic perspective um as people age um, and then they go into retirement homes and um you'll at some point you'll have a very rapid decline in like vitality and then typically, like most of the costs associated with most of the medical costs associated with, um, let's say, a person's life typically happen in the last two to three years of, yeah, of someone's lifespan. Like if you if you looked at all of the doctor visits that, um, let's say, a woman had throughout her lifetime uh, and the costs associated with those individual doctor visits um, at the end of her life 
like that number grows exponentially. Um, uh, through the onset of age-related diseases, be they cardiovascular diseases, your heart not functioning as good anymore, or, um, or tumors developing in your body, uh, or for example, then you have other diseases like Alzheimer's that really create an enormous kind of cost and burden, well, not just to society, but also obviously to, 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 to that person and, and to, the, to the relatives of that person. And so now the question is, could we, would it be possible to like offset the onset of those diseases by uh, 10, 20 years? So the goal wouldn't be to just to live, to live up to the age of, let's say, 150 with, um, but kind of having the same decline that we know today, where you kind of, you can't move as fast anymore, you can't think as well anymore. And so the question is, what if we could push that really into, um, yeah, really into the future? Uh, and and through that actually have much a much more productive and, and happy end of life. Um, and then maybe bringing this into the context of a DAO. So most longevity research that we know, like that is being funded today, uh, is uh, is being funded by by billionaires. <laughs> uh, it's not, <laughs> and so it's, it's longevity therapeutics haven't really been on the let's say the purview of of pharma companies. And, and the reason for that is because aging is not considered a, a disease. So if you want to develop a like a, a pharmaceutical or a medicine and you want to take it through the classical pharmaceutical development pipeline, what you're developing has to be considered a, a disease by kind of by the, the Food and Drug Administration in the in the US or by the EMA, the European Medicine Agency. But so and aging, so aging has been in this in this weird field where if you essentially develop a medicine that would prevent people from getting a disease, that's not considered a treatable disease <laughs> in itself. Um, this, may, this may actually change in the future. So there are several initiatives in the US that are uh, essentially working on actually making aging an indication. But so maybe that has a little bit of background. So aging hasn't really been a, a focus of the broader pharmaceutical industry. And so it has really been, uh, a lot of funding has come from initially from billionaires, uh, but then also increasingly, there's a kind of a blossoming, let's say, venture capital industry that is only focused on supporting uh, biotech companies uh, and researchers that are working yeah, on developing longevity therapeutics. And within that context, uh, aging hasn't really been, there's a large, let's say, aging research community. But I think it's been quite difficult for the general public to, let's say, participate in that and to actually get involved. Biotech, the biotech field has this always has this area of like sometimes of secrecy around it. And um, so I think in looking at this from the lens of a, of a DAO or a decentralized community, um, I think those structures are really powerful in democratizing access to the re to research um, and uh, also like democratizing involvement in, in, in the therapeutics that are being developed. So potentially the risk, the risk of developing really aging therapeutics in a monopolized way let's say if we had one pharma company or let's say one um one let's say billionaire <laughs> or a couple of billionaires essentially monopolize aging therapeutics and then control access to that um so it's almost like like imagine you'd have a future where there's just like let's say a small elite that have access to to these kinds of therapeutics uh and then i think through that there's actually a risk of um of a increasing concentration of power so if a certain class of people so there's a so my background is originally in economics and there's this uh, concept of the redistribution of wealth so uh, like as people as like powerful people age 
uh, and like as wealthy people age, once they die, they their wealth is kind of redistributed broadly. Um, and, and it kind of then trickles down to their families and maybe foundations that they've set up. But like the, that concentration of wealth and power is like redistributed uh, over time. And so if wealthy and powerful people would stop aging, then that would also increasingly concentrate wealth and, and power in the world. Um, so that's a little bit maybe a, a philosophical lens to, to look at it from as well. Well, actually, now that you're talking, I, I remember watching a show on Netflix pretty much on the same concept that you that you just spoke about. It's called Altered Carbon. And it's pretty much this whole hypothesis that the rich become so rich and, and they are able to, um, you know, have like, like they have a situation where they never die. And then the poor people be end up becoming even poorer. And it's a society in the future, which is like, absolutely unequal. So I mean, <laughs> sci fi is actually, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's actually a show about it to think about that. Um, okay, so I think before uh, you you briefly touched upon, yes, this is the problem in the industry, you know, and, and the pharmaceutical industry. But I think there might be some audience who really don't uh, have too much background on, you know, the relevance of IP in, in pharma and uh, where actually most of the research happens. How do you think really blockchain uh, or, or crypto is actually needed to solve this? So probably the, it has two parts. One is that the real problem and the second is why blockchain? Yeah, uh, great question. So uh, if we think about how biotech research or the pharmaceutical industry really works, uh, I think it's it's interesting to look at it from, from two angles. And essentially, a, a large pharmaceutical company really only has two things. They have, I, like, if you look at it from an asset perspective, like, what is inside of these giant companies? It's not like they, it's not like they have real estate or like they they uh, provide, um, let's say, yeah, they provide essential goods and services, but um, it's really based around their intellectual property portfolios. Um, so these like pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies essentially develop portfolios of, of IP in the form of patents. And uh, it, takes, uh, it takes quite a long time to essentially get a, um, a new medication onto the market. And once you have it on the market, so you, you essentially imagine there's this long funnel and it starts, it typically starts in academia in small research laboratories where let's say a researcher has an idea to develop a new cancer therapeutic. And, uh, and then let's say she, um, she kind of begins on a path of like obtaining funding to kind of prove out her thesis and to develop it, like drug development is quite expensive. <laughs> and so essentially the other component of drug development is data production. And so essentially throughout the, the pharmaceutical development process, you need different entities that essentially finance data production. And in return, you're kind of distributing ownership of the IP gradually as you move along. And so today, distributing ownership in the IP really happens through equity. So uh, let's say this, this researcher, uh, she, she then decides to create a biotech company. Um, she obtains some, some venture capital funding. And now that biotech company, the core, the core thing that it has is really this, this, this IP. Uh, and so now um, the biotech company might file for a patent um, and probably then a series of new discoveries. 
and uh, essentially now obtains more and more financing to, to begin researching and producing data about this IP. And uh, then typically as things go, those companies grow and move along and, and typically then they're at some point acquired by a, by a pharmaceutical company. Typically, the VCs that finance these companies are also backed by pharma companies. So it's really like it's really for them, it's a discovery engine. So this this early stage VC financing ecosystem is a discovery engine for pharmaceutical companies who then typically uh, would then maybe acquire this company at stage as it's about to maybe enter stage one of clinical trials. And then anywhere from stage two and stage three, that drug development becomes extremely expensive because you essentially need to coordinate these very large scale, very bureaucratic, political, in some cases, getting the approval is, is, is political, um, large scale clinical trials. And the problem, though, in this, if you think through, and this starts, again, starts in a, in a small lab in, a, in an academic institution and then goes all the way to these, to these large companies. The core value driver, though, that is being pushed along the process is this IP. So the IP essentially says, hey, here's a new molecule and, uh, and it, it, it could be a viable cure for this and this disease. And then you, you produce data to validify that thesis. The problem with that is that... Um, uh, IP today in the form that it works is is highly is essentially a monopoly and and if we contain IP within companies, um, those companies only have an incentive to show positive data, right? Like if I'm a company now, we're backed by uh, by venture capital firms. Um, we have a certain valuation. We have lots of employees to pay. It, we have an incentive that 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 we sh- only show positive data about this drug. And so at the point when, for example, the at the point where a pharma company would then be interested in purchasing the IP or purchasing the company, as a biotech company, I don't have an obligation to show you the, the negative data. I will already show you the positive data. <laughs> and so and so we could have run 50 studies on this on this particular uh, drug or the, the IP, and two of them worked. So 48 didn't work, two of them worked, and one of them is maybe kind of inconclusive. So we'll only show you the the positive data, and then let's say this 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 asset, this company, or this IP is now purchased. It goes into a pharma company, and the pharma company invests now another. Say they purchase the company for a hundred million dollars. Uh, that would be a small acquisition, like even like in in pharma terms, or like a me- medium size, not a, not a, not a small one. Uh, and then let's say the pharma company now invests over two to three years. They invest another five hundred million. And then the asset fails in second stage clinical trials. The problem is the, the monopolization of IP and how we share data essentially creates a lot of inefficiencies in this entire like drug development process. So what we've been working on at Molecule and 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 then VitaDAO is really I think a first uh, organization that has fully fully um, validified that thesis and proven that the model could work. We're essentially saying, hey, what if we move IP out of these um, centralized organizations and move move the IP into a more open structure, where essentially now it's not, and now the fundraising around the IP is not tied to an um, again not tied to an, an, an individual organization, but you can distribute ownership to to multiple participants, uh, and those participants can now let's say move in and out of the IP ownership. And can fund the IP in a more decentralized way. And then maybe, uh, maybe to answer, so, so there was a long-winded answer, but I wanted to give your listeners just a little bit of an understanding of how these processes work. And so, so where blockchain becomes really interesting here is um, specifically in the context of uh, a technology that 
grew immensely over the past three or four years is which is which are non-fungible tokens. Uh, and non-fungible tokens can really represent pretty, yeah pretty much anything. Uh, you could have you can there's car collections, there's uh, there's art uh, like I, th I think art was really I think a, a, <laughs> a core explosive growth um, factor for for NFTs. Um, but N NFT essentially just stands for non-fungible token. So it's a token that's initially not divisible. But you can now you can program these these assets yet to represent pretty much anything. And if we think about how IP works, uh, IP is is by vert by nature a uh, it's a construct. It's completely virtual. Like at best, it's it's a box of papers that describe the IP. IP is, for example, a relationship between two companies. Like one company says, "Hey, we developed this." And then it's like a trade. It's initially a trade secret, if you think of it that way. Uh, but like a, even a pitch deck could be an IP. Like IP is this this quite complex. Um, it's a virtual construct by design. It doesn't exist. It's a right that's granted between two companies, or a right granted by the government, for example, in the form of, of a patent. But so essentially, over the past let's say 40, 50 years, like the IP landscape hasn't really evolved, and it's it's very hard to transact in IP. That's why IP is typically encapsulated within companies. And so non-fungible tokens are extremely interesting, let's say, technology carriers for IP. And what's really happened in the NFT art space is like all of these kind of uh, these, these yeah, art NFTs that, you're, that people are buying and trading, those are new forms of media. And in some cases, and in some cases, the creators of, of these art NFTs specifically remove media ownership from them. So that you actually don't have any rights, but in other cases, the the rights to the artwork are fully encapsulated within the NFT. And so we're using the same technology to essentially attach, uh, on the one side, full legal rights to an underlying intellectual property asset. For example, the discovery of a new molecule. So we're attaching that to an NFT. But then on the other side, what we're also attaching to the NFT are um, essentially all of the raw data assets that now come with this molecule. So maybe going back to the original example, uh, this researcher at this uh, academic institution, she's she's discovered a new, let's say, cancer therapeutic. Through our mechanism, she could now attach instead of instead of then putting the IP rights into a into a biotech company and getting VC funding, she could now attach the IP rights to an, an NFT. <laughs> And at the same time, also attach all of the raw data, like let's say her clinical, the like the preclinical data, the studies that she's run in the laboratory, the studies, the in silico studies that she's run on her, uh, like on, on her computer. She could attach that also to the NFT. And so now the NFT encapsulates those IP rights. And for example, then the NFT could be could be now purchased by a, a cancer research lab. And this cancer research now by purchasing the NFT actually begins funding her research and her work. Um, you move the IP now into a decentralized community of other researchers, of scientists across the world, uh, of investors, funders. Um, but the important thing is now that the NFT goes into this decentralized structure, kind of where it can be much more openly researched and, and developed, as is kind of currently the case if you think of IP ending up in kind of in a large, yeah, in a, in, a, in a large company. And now you could ask, wait, wouldn't the cancer research style have similar incentives <laughs> to kind of only show the positive data and not the negative? That is, in principle, that is that is quite true. Um, really? I, okay. 
Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think at a base level, if you if you considered if you considered that the goal of the cancer research DAO is to find successful therapeutics, and like it might not have an incentive to, but but I think by nature of, of having something in a decentralized community, positive and negative data will emerge much more quickly. And then maybe the last the last point, and then sorry, Dixon, I want to hand hand it back to you. No, I'm I'm all engrossed. Please go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> Uh, maybe the last point on this is that what's where it gets really interesting is then also decentralizing ownership in the NFT itself. So the current the current frameworks that we have really then mean, for example, so what VitaDAO does. So maybe let's extrapolate this to this example to VitaDAO. VitaDAO is engaging universities across the globe, uh, and essentially um, and essentially doing exactly what I just described. It's kind of taking in the IP from those universities and even from biotech companies. And then in, incubating it within VitaDAO. And uh, the next interesting thing that VitaDAO is looking at doing is essentially taking those IP NFTs and then making them fractional again. <laughs> so, so now you. What do you mean by that? Making them fractional again? <laughs> um, so that means essentially now you could create a million uh, tokens of this NFT, oh, and okay. you could now open them up to community ownership. You could, for example, say, "Hey." We need some additional research studies done on this particular uh, this particular drug that we're looking at. If a researcher comes in and does them, then they get let's say X amount of ownership in in the NFT. You can also now create a public market. So like any let's say any token that trades on Uniswap, you could essentially tokenize this this NFT uh, and and enable public participation. And now what would happen is now you might have let's say you might have a very geeky scientific community that emerges around this that likes to trade in and out of these assets as data emerges. So if the researchers around this uh, this particular asset that VitaDAO is developing are finding, hey, this this uh, this is working really well and positive data is emerging, like by the way that markets work, people would be likely to, to buy into that asset uh, because they expect it to be undervalued. Vice versa, if negative data was to emerge, um, they might sell their ownership in that asset, and and so if you think about this now, this developed this starts developing very interesting curation mechanisms around data and around these therapeutics that are being developed. And I think to like to this point again, where why is blockchain needed here? What's happening now is you you start creating these micro micro markets around research and around data. And, and this could be extremely beneficial to scientific progress um, because you're essentially making the scientific development process much more real-time. And so, for example, if what typically happens, for example, in the biotech space is like, let's say a company does a funding, like, like let's say a company is valued at, at $5 million and they're very early stage, they're developing this new cancer therapeutic. And then two years later, they have breakthrough data and suddenly the company is worth, let's say, 500 million. And that's actually a market inefficiency if you think about it. Like you have these huge value growth suddenly uh, and where I, I think I think blockchain-based markets or like Web3-based markets are really interesting is that they kind of level that out and you have much more kind of real-time data and value flows. So for example, if like if VitaDAO was to discover a new therapeutic and or like like if very positive data emerged, then very quickly you would have massive, massive capital inflows coming to support more research around that asset. If that makes, yeah, if that makes sense. 
No, it does. It it completely does. And actually, I want to dive also, um, you know, a, a, a little deeper into the structure of Vida Dao. But before that, um, so I, I think probably this I should have covered earlier. Uh, but so you have Vita Dao and then you have Molecule Protocol. So for people who are really not uh, familiar with it, including me, like when it comes to the exact connection, though I read about it, what is exactly the connection between the two and how is one serving the, the other? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> our goal at Molecule is really to serve organizations like VitaDAO. Um, and uh, I think we're still at the very early stages of kind of this nascent uh, Web3 and biotech and like DSI, decentralized science ecosystem. So concepts, concepts like VitaDAO are quite replicable. So VitaDAO, for example, is, is focusing on democratizing longevity therapeutics. But what if you had a, a DAO focused on diabetes? Um, so developing new democratized um, um, uh, insulin medication or, or diabetic medication more broadly. Uh, you could have a malaria DAO. You could have a DAO focused on COVID, on Alzheimer's research. But now the fundamental question for each of these DAOs is, wait, how do they fully interact with the real world? And how can they own IP? Coming back to the original notion that we had at the beginning of this call, being IP is the core value driver. And and so what, at Molecule, what we've um, what we've been working on um, for almost over two years already is essentially developing uh, developing this framework, which is an IP NFT, uh, and essentially creating a marketplace for for anyone, not just DAOs, to essentially transact in these IP NFTs. Yeah, I think you mentioned. Open sea for biotech IP in one of your talks. I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what we've built, um, and and yeah, you you you're free to check this out on um, uh, our um, marketplace is called Discover. So it's discover.molecule.to, where you can essentially browse um, hundreds of research projects from universities and, and biotech companies across the globe. And uh, so this marketplace is now a function of global demand, uh, global de global supply, and global demand. Uh, and it's a mix of like an open sea and a, a yeah open sea and a research gate. So it really allows researchers and and biotech companies to define, hey, here's this new interesting uh, therapeutic that we're working on. Uh, it could be a biologic, it could be a, a new small molecule. Uh, the, I mean, the 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 scope is very broad. Here's what we're working on. Uh, we need. We're looking for a, a development partner. We're looking for funding. Um, here are a couple of the next experiments that we want to run. Here's the stage of the IP, and so we're actually. So we're kind of we're standardizing how a little bit how these assets are approached by a demand side, and there's a huge global demand actually for identifying new exciting research, but to date something like this hasn't really existed. And the reason it hasn't existed is because it's very hard to transact with IP. But so the core thing that we want we want to solve through this marketplace is really a broadening like financial access for researchers to just get them funded as soon as possible to prove their to prove their hypothesis. Uh, and then, but then what happens is we're essentially through this marketplace porting the IP into Web three. And once it's in Web3, it can be developed and programmed in an entirely new way, for example, through through DAOs. But fundamentally, this marketplace can be used by, it, it could be used by you. So, Dixie, you could go on there and say, hey, um, here's an exciting project from Charité Berlin, and they're looking for uh, $50,000 in funding. 
Um, but not only would I be, would you be funding the research? And now you could also, you could, you and a couple of friends could get together and be like, hey, we actually think this is, has a lot of potential and we're going to be the first to fund this. And then maybe, maybe it's related to longevity research. Maybe in the next step, VitaDAO can now purchase the IP. Uh, if the first data that resulted from it was interesting, or VitaDAO might be the first kind of financer of this of this research. But rather than just saying, "Hey, we're just funding this for fun because we we love it," we are also saying, "Hey, we're not just going to fund it. We are actually going to own the underlying IP, which is what pharma companies and biotech companies have been doing for yeah for decades. It's, it's how the industry works." Yeah, as far as I understand it, so there are researchers, and then there are. Uh, which which is like a prominent segment of uh, this community because they are the ones who are developing IPs and then you know putting it into the system, and and then there is uh, like the demand side where these IPs are sort of like people like me can support it or or anybody else. So what's the kind of balance between the supply and and the demand side and 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 what is it that you see uh, there? Does it make sense what I asked? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, and, and maybe in the context, so the, the balance of the supply and the demand side. Uh, so first, I mean, we could look at this uh, in a global context. Uh, so let, let's say we're, we're outside of our marketplace. Um, so like biotech companies and biotech VCs and, and, and angels that work in, in different research areas they are very actively kind of out there looking for IP constantly. And, and there's no, um, from interesting researchers, and um, there's no way to, there's no good ways today to transparently find that and discover the IP or discover this research. And so now if we look at this in the context of like, let's say a Web3 based supply and demand, I think it's very powerful to kind of enable, like enable researchers to to obtain funding in a much more seamless way, but also put them back in control. So through the systems and frameworks that we're developing, uh, researchers have uh, kind of have more control over what happens to to the IP that they're developing, and they also stand to have more upside. And the, the same actually goes for the universities um, that are involved in this, because typically if a researcher is approached by a pharma company, the pharma company obviously has much more control over what's going to happen next. <laughs> uh, if they're really interested and want to finance this. And so web three in that sense levels the, the playing field. It makes processes more, um, transparent and more democratic. And then, so in the context of Vida, for example, like the, the researchers that Vida works with actually in some cases join Vida and the organization. They receive they receive Vita tokens, which now enable them to, for example, participate in the governance of what happens to their IP, which again is a really interesting new concept. It's like if I was a researcher that um, yeah, if I like if if I as a researcher was joining a pharma company, it's almost like if I receive partial ownership now of the pharma company, which just is not the way that the world works today. And then maybe to your last and previous question, so um, so maybe the relationship from between molecule and Vita so. What we're doing is on the one side, we're kind of serving VitaDAO in the sense of uh, helping VitaDAO acquire IP and really um, seamlessly enable this IP to NFT process that allows organizations like VitaDAO to really legally own the IP on chain. We then also like help settle the funding flows. So kind of yeah, funds that are in Web3 and offboarding those into the real world and just ensuring that a university or a researcher can just get 
normal money in their bank account <laughs> and essentially don't have that don't have to interface with the crazy world of web3 or discords or metamask i think over time though that will change so that's on the supply side and on the demand side we are also very actively building out these biotech dao frameworks where essentially research organization DAOs that enable individuals communities to spin up structures that are very similar to vita dao for example, we're working with um, various patient communities um, uh, that are in the rare disease space. So, example, the, yeah, that is, for example, that have been trying to work for years to develop therapeutics for a specific rare disease. Um, and typically, these are these are quite small patient communities, and that are kind of left that where big pharma isn't interested in developing anything because the patient communities are too small. But so now, if we provide those communities, for example, we to bundle together through the concept of a DAO, then they can actually kind of bundle enough economic power and funding power to begin financing um, uh, therapeutics for the diseases that affect them. And so our relationship with Molecule with those organizations is essentially to be a service provider and to help them succeed, but also to just provide frameworks, DAO frameworks, to essentially enable them to quickly spin up these organizations. Because we know if those organizations exist, then that also helps us grow kind of the marketplace protocol that we're developing. And how long um, have, have has Molecule been there? Like for how long? Do you mean how long have we existed as an organization or? Yes. So I began working on this in mid-2018. And then uh, that's also around the time I met my co-founder, Tyler. Uh, we then formally began working on it in, I think, early 2019. That's when you find some first article. And then uh, we raised a, a small funding round uh, in January uh, 2020. And have been, yeah, I've been growing the organization since since then. And what has been your, I, I don't know if you can really quantify it or, you know, but I'm just curious, like in terms of the n- number of researchers or the growth at, w- at which, you know, they have been joining the community, coming on board, uh, sharing their research, what has been the kind of growth rate and experience on that side? Because, I mean, I fair, I spent like fairly decent amount at the Molecule Discord channel and I could see like a lot of researchers also coming on board where being very open to you know the whole idea of DAO and decentralization when it comes to DSI you know I'm trying to get a sense of the enthusiasm on the researcher side I mean the the enthusiasm is very like yeah very large to to engage in the in these novel structures and typically these are researchers that almost in some cases just feel forgotten by the system or they feel uh they they feel super tired of of how let's say the biotech industry is is going about research and 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 they know what often happens it, like if if their discoveries ever make it to a patient that the ultimate medication could be extremely expensive uh, in some cases for example you have so the drug that came onto the market for a rare childhood disease in i think it's 2018 the drug uh, took years of years of research was an extreme like a great breakthrough but the drug ended up costing over a million dollars <laughs> and and effectively effectively priced and this is like a like a rare childhood disease um but it, it's not that uncommon um but essentially priced almost like 95% of the patient population out of the market so now you have 5% of children that that this can actually help and 95 that cannot afford it <laughs> and and that's just because in the current system developing drugs is very expensive and so there's this bigger vision piece of how i think how th- this new system could help researchers and help patients develop 
drugs more cheaply. And then on the other side, it's just simply, I think, making the life of a researcher much easier. So some of the researchers that we've we've worked with um, at the University of Copenhagen, for example, they said things like they spend 80% of their time uh, fundraising and get to, to try and get grants from different organizations. Or, or if you set up a biotech company as a researcher, that's an extremely burdensome process. You're often engaged in just a year of trying to get the IP out of the university, trying to raise money from venture capital, setting up a company. And so this, this mechanism, we are like, oh, cool, you have interesting research. We can get you funded in two or three weeks. And then off you go and do the experiment. And also enabling those researchers to share their work in a much more much broader community. So another thing is that IP today is always comes to this, like, this once you get, um, the, uh, IP is always kind of shredded in secrecy and, and in the biotech world especially. And um, so we've come at this with a very new approach of like, hey, just be more public, share your research, share your work. But at the same time, through the IPNFT, um, that enables us to really actually protect the research that is being done. And we like we really hope, over th- so right now, it's still uh, sometimes a fairly like manual process of, um, yeah, of like engaging one of these researchers that comes in and then and then working together with the university to spin up a, a project page for them on our, on our platform, create an IPNFT. But over time, um, like I hope, let's say maybe in the next six months, for the process to really become as seamless as like minting an NFT on OpenSea today. So where, where you as a researcher could completely independently just sign up on a platform and you see how other researchers are doing this and you create a project page and now members of our community come and say, hey, cool. Um, they ask a couple of questions, a couple of comments. You you refine the, the research approach a little bit. Uh, and then two weeks later, you have funding. <laughs> the funding flows to your university laboratory and you kick off the work. Um, okay. So the problem is not just with the startups in the tech space who need funding. I mean, it's it's a common problem that they spend most of their time raising capital to build what they want to. Yeah, there's a if if anyone's interested in that, there's a just Google the valley of death in translational medicine, and you'll find probably fifty plus academic papers that describe exactly this problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll share it in the show notes. Uh, Paul, can I cover like? One more, if not two, like what's your... Yeah, absolutely. Do we have five minutes? Okay, cool. So um, I think then I'll cover two more uh, with probably depending on your time. Uh, So one is actually that uh, this was um, asked like on Twitter that how is a DAO in in the pharmaceutical industry or in biotech actually different from any other DAOs that you would have in, in the space? And when they mean different, you know, they mean in terms of incentives, ethics, or or how you run it. So, I mean, you don't run it, the community pretty much runs it. But yeah, that's, that's the question. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think from a bottom-up perspective, these are communities for, for researchers and, and for patients. And so I think, and for investors that are interested in supporting that research. And so if we compare this to like, let's say other DAOs in the decentralized finance space, I think you need to approach the financialization in a much more, in a very different way and, and the tokenization of these communities. So you want to build a very different like research focused culture and a topic focused culture um, with the end goal being not being, hey, uh, let's let's say pump a token or like we're all going to get rich, but like, Hey, let's, let's serve patients and let's focus on the scientific outcomes here. 
And so within VitaDAO, for example, there's um, a, a very large longevity working group, which is comprised of, uh, I'd say, about 70 to 80 world-class leading scientists from laboratories across the world. In, in some cases, there's scientists that have left their academic posts, their professor posts, to really just serve this organization. And then also, like, you have concentric circles of, that kind of get smaller. Because the, within, and then you have project teams, and within those teams, they're, for example, looking at very specific disease areas, and they're then actually reviewing scientific data or projects that they see that they see emerge. But so VitaDAO, in essence, has like this big funnel that it's looking at of research projects, and then those research projects come in, and they then get discussed in smaller, specialized project teams. And so this is a, this is a very different function than what you would find, let's say, maybe in a DAO that's focused on on decentralized finance where you then have different development teams that are building things out uh, and, and where their output is essentially GitHub, let's say maybe GitHub commits. Uh, in in VitaDAO, the output would be um, the output would be evaluating research, making recommendations about specific research that the DAO should fund, identifying interesting research, uh, and then also working with working with those scientists that are doing the research to refine their experiments. So for example, maybe a scientist says, hey, I I, my approach to looking to um, to a kind of creating data is is this approach, and then the VitaDAO research team would say, actually, have you considered do, taking the following approach? And we would recommend one, two, and three. And by the way, also we have a postdoc working at a different laboratory. We can connect you with with her, and uh, you guys can start working together. Um, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. I'm, actually, I mean, I, I in my head. Uh, it's like I didn't know that it, there can actually be a difference in you know tokenization and how. And honestly, I don't know how most DAOs work. So our next episode is going to talk about scaling of DAOs and and how they work. So I'm also learning as as I talk to you know more and more guests. So yes, that answers. Um, so Paul, on a closing note, what's what's next for? Uh, molecule and Vita DAO, and you know how does your let's say one year vision look like? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so, uh, on the molecule side, we're really rapidly growing, uh, growing our team, really uh, onboarding uh, uh, lots of exciting research at the moment. Uh, if anyone, uh, any of your listeners uh, are interested to get involved, there, please please feel free to join our Discord. And then we're also launching uh, launching other DAOs and other um, or, or like essentially helping other people launch DAOs in other therapeutic areas. Uh, and on the Vita DAO side, so Vita DAO is uh, it's, it's only six months old, but it's already kind of generated a large, as I as I mentioned earlier, a large funnel of interesting research. Uh, Vita DAO has also started out a let's say a scientific community uh, channel. Uh, where it's essentially almost creating like and scientific media about uh, about longevity research. For what's next for VitaDAO is essentially to really continue proving its model, uh, obtaining more exciting research, uh, and then VitaDAO is also very actively building inroads into industry. Uh, so actually developing relationship with uh, with very serious biotech companies, with uh, with other longevity VCs, and with um, pharmaceutical companies. Um, to essentially then also help offboard the IP again. So v you can think of VitaDAO now as a, like an accelerator of this early stage research, but VitaDAO won't be at least for quite a while in, in the position of actually like to, to bringing a therapeutic through through clinical trials. And there it, it like it's seeking yeah to partner with uh, with really with industry, uh, and also again help level the playing field for um, for the members of VitaDAO to ensure that the IP that they've helped bring to life. 
uh, yeah, actually then makes it to patient in a, in a more democratic way than it is today. So we usually ask this ev to everybody who comes on this podcast is like, if you had to leave like a one line message, you know, on a closing note, what would that be? Uh, just keep building, uh, keep pursuing, uh, keep pursuing your, your dream. Uh, I, I think Web3 uh, is, is extremely interesting because it enables such new coordination mechanisms. And there's an interesting thing in Web3. I mean, it used to be like there's degens, <laughs> um, but increasingly there's a culture of, of regen. So really, instead of decentralized finance, it's regenerative finance. And maybe, yeah, maybe if I can leave your listeners with that, keep keep building. And uh, web, the Web3 community is an extremely welcoming place. And uh, I think this, this intersection of decentralized uh, science is only, yeah, only starting up. Great note. And thanks, actually, for being our first guest talking about DSI. And I hope we have more and more uh, guests on this topic in this season. Uh, thanks a lot for your time, Paul. It was great chatting with you. Wonderful. Thank you so much 